Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your word now, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, and we pray, Lord, that you just guide us and lead us. And uh, I do pray you'd speak to our hearts by your spirit, that these words that, that have been penned by the Holy Spirit would just go deep into our hearts. And we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, from, to Colossians chapter 1, to which you say, wow, are you kidding? We get to read Colossians today? Just try it. Come on. Settle down. Just settle down. Just settle down. Um, so... Two weeks ago, we started the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 1, and then last week we heard from John Markey. And let me just tell you this, um, um, I went back and listened to that again. Let me encourage you to go back and listen to uh, last week's teaching um, from Johnny. It was uh, amazing, and it was one of those that uh, every once in a while I listen to something and, uh, you know, I always want to learn, and I always want to grow, and I always want, you know, all of that. Um, but there's some, you ever notice, that you just kind of like, um, wow, I need to digest that. I need to kind of digest that again, and I need to digest that again. And there's just, there's just a lot of richness there. So um, uh, I tell you that because it wasn't me talking. So um, there you go. But anyway, it's been two weeks now since we talked about Colossians, and so I thought it would be prudent for us to review a little bit. Is that fair? How fair is that? Way. Way so fair. <laughs> we got bouncers over here. Um, so um, I do think it's important that we review. And we're going to, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're just kind of dialing down the speed here a little bit. Today we look at verses 15 through 20. We're just going to look at five verses. We're going to take three weeks to do Colossians chapter 1, which is uh, frankly a little out of character for me. But... Um, I really feel like it's what we're supposed to do. So anyway, two weeks ago we talked about Colossians as a matter of introduction. Um, I read somewhere, and I forget where it was even now, um, that some say that the book of Ephesians kind of talks about, you know, the body of Christ, among other things. And whereas Ephesians kind of highlights that, particularly chapter 4 there, talks about the body of Christ. Whereas Colossians now focuses on the head of the body of Christ, and his name is Jesus, okay? And so if you think about it like that, we talk about the body of Christ in Ephesians, but now in Colossians, uh, we talk about the head, and we're going to focus on the head. And I used this analogy two weeks ago, and I'm going to make you suffer through it yet again, that uh, we're nature lovers in our family, and we live on this, uh, over this creek, and, and you remember the analogy? Everybody remember? Right. So some of you do. So... That's why I'm doing it again. Um, there's a hawk's nest on the other side of the creek that we can see in the early spring before the leaves come on. And we even got this special scope. And, and the whole analogy now, right, as I'm dialing in the scope to the hawk's nest across the creek, what happens between everything between me and the hawk's nest? What does it get? Blurry. Very blurry, very fuzzy. And I think there's a, there's a principle there in our Christian experience. And that is, the more we draw our focus in on the head of the body, that is Jesus, the more blurry everything else gets. And here's the, the particular kind of blurry that I think it needs to be. If we're not careful, 
if we lose our focus there, then we start to focus on those other things, right? And here's what I've noticed over, over life is that those other things are either sources of disappointment and, um, and heartache, maybe, or false security. Does that make sense? For example, you know, we talked about, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be an astronaut, and in the off-season, I'm going to play in the NBA, and it's going to be so awesome, and I'm going to be a bazillionaire, and I'm going to drive my, my cruise ship all around the ocean, all around the world, right? When we were kids, we, did you guys say stuff like that? Well, I did. And then, you know, you get a little bit older, and you don't quite buy a cruise ship. What's that going to, what's that, if you're not careful, if you're not focused on, on the head, Jesus, you go through life, you know, one series of sort of, well, we never quite traveled the world, and the older we get, looks like we might not ever travel the world, and my prospects, I'm just going to tell you this, honestly, you may not realize this, but I do. My prospects of the playing in the NBA get more dim as each year goes by. I had, when I was five, I, I, was, I was a contender, right? And every year that goes by, that disappointment gets a little more tangible. Does that make sense? Right. And so, you know, you kind of go through life, you know, all those things that are, you know, that we're not supposed to focus on. You know, if we're not careful, we go through life with this series of, of disappointments. And what do we learn in Colossians chapter one? That verse five, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. See, if we're not if we're not careful. All those things that haven't happened by a certain point in our life, they become sources of, of despair, of hopelessness, of disappointment, all of those kinds of things because we're not focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. On the other hand, if we, you know, man, I'll tell you what, even today, right? Like, you know, if I want to focus on something that's maybe of this world or of my flesh or something else like that, then it takes me the wrong direction. I put some kind of false hope on that. And so what Colossians, I believe, is doing for us is it's just helping us to focus on Jesus uh, in proper perspective. Does that make sense? So um, really, that's the essence of what we're talking about. And what's interesting is this. Paul himself, as he's writing this letter, he's dealing with a lot of, of bad doctrine, of, of, of different things that are sort of creeping into the church by this point in time. People are getting uh, weird uh, ideas about the nature of Jesus and sort of taken away from his deity and a lot of that sort of thing. And I want to point out that Paul, how Paul sort of battles that is not by saying, well, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. What's he do? He says, this is who Jesus is. He counters the false by highlighting the true. And that's what we should do. Because we could spend all day long getting tired and weary of trying to fight off every enemy and every false doctrine and everything that we think is wrong. And next thing you know, all we are is some kind of expert critic. 
when instead we should just focus on Jesus. And so, again, that's what, that's what it's taken us through here. Is that fair? All right. So um, what I want us to do is as we kind of today, we even, you know, as we're looking at focusing in on Jesus, if you will, we're looking at some of his attributes. And the reason I want to go through this slowly, I want us to kind of savor those attributes. Right. And sometimes in scripture, you know, we'll read maybe a history chapter or a psalm chapter or a prophecy chapter or something like that. But I think in this in this context, when we're talking about the attributes of Jesus Christ, I think we need to really just kind of sort of savor it a little bit. All right. So look at chapter one, verse 15. It says he. Now, that's the subject of, who, of what we're talking about. He, his name is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. We'll stop there. Not like for the whole day, but just for this interlude. He is the image of the invisible God. So he, we're talking about Jesus. It's important that we know that. He, you know, when we're looking through that scope at that, at that hawk, right? We're talking about the hawk. And we're not talking about, you know, the cardinal over here between me and the hawk. We're talking about the hawk. And so here we are. He is the image of the invisible God. We're talking about Jesus Christ. So he's the subject in our, in our focus. And notice he's the image of the invisible God. This word image is much more than just like a representation. And what Paul's doing here is he's bringing us, he's really kind of bringing together all the, all the, attributes of Jesus, which make us draw the conclusion that he, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is fully capable of saving us from our sin because Jesus is God. And so we're going to kind of pull these things together. He's the image of the invisible God. And the word image is contrasted there with invisible, right? Nobody has seen God at any time. The Bible tells us, right? But we have seen Jesus. It's like, because God is invisible, God gives us Jesus to sort of see what God is like. It's really, you know, in a sense, God's gift to us is the image. The same word image here is used. You remember when they asked Jesus, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You remember that story? You know, you know, do you remember that story when they um, asked Jesus, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yeah. yeah okay. So good. So um, he said, bring me a denarius, right? And then he said, who's image is on the denarius. And they said, Caesar's. Well, did it mean that like Caesar's picture was just on that coin just because? Or did it represent something much greater? Was it a constant reminder that Caesar, Caesar is in charge of everything? Caesar is on the throne. Caesar is in charge of the Roman Empire. Caesar has control over the money, over everything. And so when it says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, it's like, yeah, he's the image. He's the representation that, that he's the, sort of the manifestation, if you will, of all that God is. And so that's the idea that Paul is, is bringing out here. He goes on. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, I don't know about you. But when I think firstborn, my brain immediately goes human. Does that make sense? Right? 
You might say, who's the firstborn in your family? Well, you're thinking of a human, right? And so in our minds, we think there's something I think that, that we can, if we're not careful, he's the firstborn over all creation. All right, he's the firstborn, like, you know, over all creation. But we know that when he was, and we know this, but I'm just reminded of us of this. Did Jesus exist before he was born? Yes. Yes. He existed before he was born. And that seems silly, but I think we need to make our brains remember that. The fact that he was born doesn't make him any less divine than we know him to be. John, verse 1. Turn back to the left, John, chapter, the book of John. Chapter 1, verse 1. says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so the Word here is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, but he existed long before he was physically born. And we need to remember that. That seems basic, seems intuitive, but these things need to be sort of clarified in our brains. He's preeminent over all creation. That includes us, and that includes the most distant galaxies. That includes everything. He's the firstborn. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven... And that are on earth. So he created all things. You know, if you look, if we, we should have kept our finger there in John. If you, if you keep going in John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So you see these parallel verses, John chapter one with Colossians chapter one describing who Jesus is. He's the creator of everything. He's the firstborn over all creation. And firstborn doesn't, as we, you know, in a sense, firstborn doesn't mean he's like the firstborn. It means he's preeminent. He's preeminent over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth. So here's what you have. What's Genesis chapter one, verse one say? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth, Right? And now here we have, by him, all things were created. All things, John 1, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and are on the earth. And so in the beginning, was, in, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Who created the heavens and the earth? Genesis chapter 1. God. By whom were all things created that are in heaven and on earth? Colossians chapter 1. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Right? You remember that math thing? I think actually Nate brought it up on Wednesday. If A equals B, I might need to go through this twice so I don't lose anybody. If A equals B, 
and B equals C, you remember this now? It's coming back to you. If A equals B and B equals C, then what does A equal? C, right? So Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, Jesus is God, right? So that's, what, that's the point that Paul is bringing out, and he's doing it with these verses here. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a guy one time. Um, he's a professor, actually. And um, he said he grew up, somehow we got talking about the Bible, and he grew up kind of going to church and, you know, being drugged to church and, you know, all that sort of thing. And then when he came of age and kind of had to decide on his own whether or not he wanted to trust the authority of the Bible, he told me this thing that resonates in my mind that I can never forget. He said, I couldn't get past the first page. I couldn't get past the first page. And if you think about it, a lot of people really can't get past the first page, right? If you, ask, if you go to Walmart and ask the first 100 people that walk in there, you ever heard the story about Jonah and the big fish? Yeah. They might buy the Jonah and the big fish thing, but they can't buy the Genesis chapter 1, that God created the heavens and the earth. They can't buy that it was created. And honestly, uh, a lot of the assault by uh, Satan and demonic forces, really on our understanding of who God is, is an attack on Genesis chapter 1 through 11. We understand that, right? And this guy said, he said, I just couldn't get past the first page. And I honestly, I, I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate his honesty. If you can't get past the first page, don't, don't as a, and Christians sometimes we do this, right? We turn, off our, we turn off our brains for the first page, and then we read the second page, right? Well, that doesn't, that's, that doesn't work, right? The Bible's either true or it's false, and I believe it to be true and scientifically plausible and all of that sort of thing. But anyway, so now we have a situation. If we're going to be New Testament Christians, we'll say, we got to get past the first page of Genesis. We also have to get past the first page of John. Does that make sense? We got to get past that God created the heavens and the earth, and we got to get past Jesus is God. And when we do that, now, if we can get past both of those two things, right, and we're in church, so I'm going to say most of us can get past those two things, now we can focus on Jesus. Now we can surrender our lives to Jesus. Now we can trust the authority of the Scripture. Now we can know that God is sovereign. Now we can rest in God's sovereignty. Now we can abide in Christ. And we can appreciate, just simply appreciate the fact that he died on a cross for us, that the pages of biblical history are true, and we can just sort of bask in that. We can appreciate all that he's done for us. We can 
live by the power of the Holy Spirit, a life that gives honor to him. So going on, verse 16, we stopped halfway through verse 16. We said, for by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. And then he goes on, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And I, I kind of divided this verse in half that way, because when we think of creation, when we say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we're thinking about plants and animals and humans and all that, right? And when we think even in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, all things are created with him, by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. We're thinking about, in our, at least in my mind, I'm thinking about physical things that I can see, right? Dogs and cats, right? Well, I don't know if he made cats, but dogs, at least, right? He made cats. Just kidding. Cat lovers. That's all right. So, but there's another thing that he made that I think sometimes we forget. Things that are visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created for, through him and, get this, for him for him. So what does that mean? That means relationships. That means governments. That means interactions that people can have with one another. That means world economies. It means everything, right? It can mean, it means everything. And I think if we're, again, if we're focused rightly on Jesus and not on the circumstances and the situations and the disappointments and the, and the false hopes, then it allows us to really appreciate him for who he is. And when we navigate through life, we navigate sometimes through difficult relationships, Right? We navigate sometimes through uh, social changes that we may or may not embrace. We navigate through economic ups and downs. We navigate through political ups and downs. We navigate through international ups and downs. We navigate through all kinds of things. But if we can recognize that all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, then we can appreciate, we can still be responsible, but we can appreciate his sovereign hand. Now, can I pause for just one second when I say that word sovereign? All right? Many of you have heard me say before, I've said it a million times, I was just talking about it with a guy yesterday. You know, there's this sovereignty responsibility spectrum, right? You all, you're tired of hearing about the sovereignty responsibility spectrum, right? But here's the thing. We also have a thing in the body of Christ that I was again reminded of yesterday. We have theological trigger words. Anybody ever notice this? If I stand up here and I say the word chosen or preordained or even the word sovereign, you're thinking of me as one of those guys, right? And you might even be tempted to give me a label. Is that fair? And if, as you give me that label, you know that I'm one of those guys that thinks uh, you can't lose your salvation. 
because God is sovereign. I'm not going to tell you whether I think that or not, right? Um, because I'm not talking now about salvation. I'm talking about daily life, which is a part of our Christian experience. Here's the point. Sometimes we get so caught up in the theological labels that we lose the value of a word. I want to be able to use the word sovereign and not be um, sort of pigeonholed with a label. Does that make sense? I also want to be, I also want to say, you know what? Galatians tells us they're sowing and reaping. Whatever man sows, he shall also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he reaps corruption. If he sows to the spirit, he reaps eternal life. That's responsibility, right? Well, I don't want you to pigeonhole me with a label there either, right? And if you notice, I never use the label. I don't use the labels. I don't like the labels. The labels are means of, of, of trying to narrow our focus on another human being, Right? I think God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both completely true aspects of the Bible and of his nature, and it is what it is, and it's beyond my head how those two things can reconcile with one another, but they do. So having said that, now I'm free to use the word sovereign. Is that okay? All right. That was all so I could just use the word sovereign, and you don't go off on your, on your theological brain. The bottom line is, I'm reading this book right now that's kind of got me tweaked a little bit, um, called... Be Still My Soul. Be Still My Soul by um, Elizabeth Elliot. And this is one that I'm just really like trying to slowly dissect. Elizabeth Elliot was a woman who went through hardship beyond what I think I probably beyond arguably what any of us will ever go through. And the bottom line in this book is she, through all of that, is able to rest in the goodness of God. That's God's sovereignty. Now, is that theologically weird? Not at all. Should we be theologically afraid of it because she can rest in the goodness of God regardless of whatever circumstances? No, that's not weird. But here's another thing that I, that I notice. That's sort of a biblical truth. It is a biblical truth that God takes care of us, that our hope is settled, eternal in the heavens, Colossians chapter 1, right? And, and all of those things. Yes. Does it always feel that way? No. And I want to be sensitive to that because it doesn't always feel like everything is settled and God's in control and I can just, you know, sing about peace like a river. It doesn't always feel that way. And I acknowledge that. I think God acknowledges that. But the reality is that's truth. That's the truth. And so it's healthy for us to be reminded that that is truth. Even though it may not, even though our, our hearts and our emotions don't always connect with the truth, that doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. So all things, so keep, think about this in the context of God's sovereignty. All things were created through him and for him, visible and invisible, relationships, healthy relationships, weird relationships. Happy times, sad times. All things are created through him and for him. How does that all work? We don't fully understand it, but it's, that's his business. And we should be okay with that. And he is before all things, verse 17. And in him all things consist. Now, many of the translations say in him all things hold together. And there's a sense in which Jesus is holding the world together. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but lately I've heard something that goes like this. 
very often, honestly. It seems like the world is what? Falling apart. Does it seem like the world's falling apart? And here's what's interesting. You can talk to somebody, you can talk to people that are polar opposites in terms of religious persuasion, in terms of political persuasion, in terms of social backgrounds, in terms of church backgrounds. And what's fascinating to me is you'll hear people from all persuasions say, wow, the world's falling apart. You know, this person over here says, wow, the world's falling apart. And this person over here says, yeah, you're right. The world is falling apart. They're talking about two different aspects of the falling apart, right? The way they see it from their particular perspective. But that's the reality. Everybody kind of sees this. And I've been thinking about this lately. And you know what the world is doing? It is falling apart, right? But it's being held together by who? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Turn over to your right, just uh, two books to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7, says this. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, is there lawlessness going on in our world today? Yes, there is. Who is the source of evil and lawlessness in our world? Satan. And does everybody fully understand how Satan works in terms of lawlessness? No. So therefore, I think we could say the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he and in most of our translations, that word he is capitalized. So now we're not talking about Satan. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. He who now restrains will do so until he capitalized is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what's going on? What's going on is the Lord is holding the world together. And at the same time, the, the mystery of lawlessness, the power of Satan, is trying to destroy the world, trying to make it fall apart, if you will. And there's going to be a time, I believe, personally, and again, don't trip me up on doctrine, but I believe personally there will be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And if you think about this in the context of what I just read in Thessalonians, if the mystery of lawlessness is there, only who, he who now, you know, he's restraining now, right? He's restraining that lawlessness. That's Jesus. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Imagine this. Imagine every Christian on America, in America today, or in the world today, every Christian in the world is filled with the presence of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Fair enough? When I walk in this room, 
There's a piece of the Holy Spirit that walks in this room. When you walk in this room as a believer of Jesus Christ, there's a piece of the Holy Spirit that walks into the room, right? Regardless of, again, our doctrine on the Holy Spirit or any of that, the reality is, the biblical truth is, we carry the Holy Spirit in us, okay? What happens if, in the twinkling of an eye, the piece of the Holy Spirit that I'm carrying around, not that you can, I mean, again, I want to, it's not like I have a piece of him, right? You know what I mean. Work with me on this. Me and you and everybody that's a child of God is immediately all of a sudden gone. What do you think will happen to the mystery of lawlessness at that moment? Game on, right? Game on. Opportunity knocks. All those annoying Christians that have been driving us crazy are gone. We don't have to deal with them anymore. They're going to stop preaching to us. They're going to stop messing with us. They're going to stop trying to affect policy. They're going to, they're gone. I think some of those people sit around and they'll say, praise the Lord, they're gone, right? And then they'll they'll think about their inconsistencies, right? We'll be gone. The mystery of lawlessness will then be free. So he who now restrains, that's the Holy Spirit, on, on earth, will do so, will continue to restrain until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It'll be a crazy time. It'll be a crazy time. Why do I say all that? Because, back to Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's literally... And again, you know, according to the Godhead, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God the Father, but collectively the Trinity is holding together this world that is otherwise trying to fall apart. And it is, in fact, otherwise trying to fall apart. So, that's on a global level. What about on a most basic level? You know, there's an interesting thing. Uh, We have a chemist in the room. So I checked this with him, okay, before I, before I got up here. And so, you know, I kind of look this way because chemist is right about 10 o'clock over here. So, so I'm going to give you the bulk of my chemistry knowledge, right? And it's just kind of like my math knowledge, A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. I, won't, I don't think I'll lose you. So there's an atom. There's a thing called an atom, right? The atom has a nucleus. Nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. Everybody with me? Sean, you with me? Okay, good. Surrounding the nucleus uh, are electrons, right? And if you split the nucleus into two smaller particles, two or more smaller particles of the nucleus. It's called nuclear fission. All right? Now, nuclear fission, if it's controlled, you have nuclear energy, right? If it's uncontrolled, as Sean taught me, if it's uncontrolled, you've got catastrophe, right? 
That's how nuclear weapons are made, right? By splitting an atom. Now, I like this. So this is where we live according to what's called the second, our world operates, among other things, according to what's called the second law of thermodynamics. Everything goes towards increased randomness, right? So if that atom is capable of being split apart to produce energy, you ever wonder why do, and if everything tends towards increasing randomness, why doesn't the atom just split apart on its own, right? Why isn't it just like pouring out a, you know, a glass of water on a tabletop and watching it spread? Why doesn't the nucleus of the atom just do that? Could it be, could it be that he, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together? You, know, you can make a case that, let's say I can split an atom, right, and produce a catastrophic nuclear weapon. That's a lot of energy, right? Well, it takes, it, it, would, it would be intuitively reasonable, at least to me, that it takes that same amount of energy to hold that atom, that nucleus, together. Does that make sense? Who's doing that? Jesus Christ. You get this? He is so in control, he's so sovereign, if you will, that he is, is preventing the mystery of lawlessness from taking, out, from taking over until he, at his prescribed moment, is taken out of the way. That's on a global level, and on the most basic level, he holds atoms together. He holds atoms together. Now, if he holds atoms together, he holds the world together, can he handle your situation? Can he handle your weird relationship? Yeah. Can he handle your economic challenge? Yeah. He can do all of that. He's so good to us. So good to us. So, he's before all things, and in him all things consist, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So again, he's the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead. So just like he's the firstborn over all creation, he's the firstborn of the dead. Not doesn't mean he's the first one to rise from the dead. You recall there were people that rose from the dead in the Bible before he did, right? But he's the most preeminent of those who rose from the dead. So he's the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, which gives us hope of our own resurrection. And he's the head of the body. He's the head of the church the body of Christ. Now, we've talked about this in the past. 1 Corinthians 12 highlights the body of Christ is, is analogous to the human body. Now, the human body has parts, right? Arms, legs, heart, kidneys, lungs, right? All of that. Just like the body of Christ has those who do this, those who do this, those who do this, those who do this, and it all fits together with the same orchestrated design as the human body does, right? But make no mistake, the head of the body of Christ is Christ himself, right? And it is critical that as we navigate as a church, as we navigate as the body of Christ, that we recognize he's the head. If we don't recognize he's the head, then we make decisions on our own, right? Churches ever make decisions on their own? 
hey, let's, we got a decision to make, uh, let's take a vote and decide, and you know, I don't want to offend uh, Brother John over there, so, uh, and he happens to be a banker, so we're going to go to him for the, for the loan, and uh, Brother Bob over here, uh, he's a builder, so you know, let's just we'll bring him in, and next thing you know, you got like this organizational structure that looks, looks pretty much like corporate America, and that's how church navigates, that's how church stuff works, right? Instead, I love what my friend used to say, probably still does, whenever somebody would bring an idea, he'd always say, that's a good idea. Now, is that a good idea or God's idea? I love that. Because we want God's idea, right? We want God's idea. We want God to be the head of the church. You ever seen a, you ever seen a body without a head? It's a little creepy. Let's go to the animal kingdom. Is that okay? I mean, no disrespect to the animal kingdom. But when I was a kid, my folks had a farm in southwestern Indiana. And I remember one time, I was probably 10 years old. I had the privilege of going over to the neighbor's house on the day that the neighbor was going to, let's just use the word harvest, uh, he was going to harvest some chickens, right? Right? And again, no disrespect. But that guy was, uh, and you know, we have we've harvested chickens and I think we, you know, there's a humane way to do it and all of that. And we try to be humane. Well, this guy really didn't care about being humane. Okay. He lays the chicken on the, on the block, has a cleaver, right? Cuts the head off the chicken, throws it, throws it over into the barnyard and grabs the next one. Right. What happened to the chicken that he just threw over, over his shoulder? What's it doing? It's going crazy. It's flopping and bouncing. And I kid you not, well, this is my recollection. I, my, my children tease me about the accuracy of my childhood memories, but <laughs> work with me on this one too. If I took a chicken with its head cut off and I dropped it in the middle of this room, it could, it could hit all four walls flopping that much, right? Any of you farmers, am I right? Right, right thank, you. thank you. Tell my kids, tell my kids, you've seen it. With your own eyes. Yeah, tell my kids. So it, it flops around like crazy. Lots of energy. Think about this now in the body of Christ without the head. Oh, lots of, man, we're doing all kinds of stuff. Like a chicken with no head. We got committees and we got outreach and we got, uh, you know, we got this and we got that. And man, we are just, we're at risk of burning out because we're so busy. Right? He's the head. He directs. A healthy body has a healthy respect for the head. When I reach out and I'm tempted to touch a hot stove, my brain tells me not to do that. And I would do well to obey my brain. Right? He's the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, in all things, in all things, in the church and in the world, in all things, he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Colossians 2.9, we'll read about this in a few weeks, says this, says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
And so Jesus is God. We've hammered that home. Jesus is God. And notice that for Jesus to manifest all the fullness of, of the Godhead bodily, that pleased the Father. You notice there's no like competition for preeminence between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all work as a, part of, as a, as a synchronous part of the unity. Verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Jesus' blood, the sacrifice on the cross, made all this possible. It verified, it validated who he is and who he was. It, it's, it supports all these other things that we've read and discussed. So because of all of the above, he is thus qualified to reconcile everything to himself. To reconcile all things to himself. He and he alone is qualified to do that. And we can be thankful for that. And through the blood of his cross, through the blood of his cross, we have peace. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Romans chapter 5 says this as we close says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with him because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ verifies or validates who he is. And so as we navigate this life, would you please keep in mind, we're supposed to be focused on him, right? Like we're focusing on a distant object, and yet he's near and dear to us, right? But we're supposed to keep our focus on, him, focus on him. And the more we keep our focus on him, the more able we're, the more we find ourselves able to sort of not be consumed by those things that should be out of focus, and the more we focus on him, the more, by contrast, we unfocus everything else. Whether we think it's a, it's a disappointment, it's a heartache, or whether we think it's something that's really cool. And through that, we see and we get to experience his goodness more clearly, his providence more clearly, we get to rest in all the, all the attributes of who he is. And it's a good life. Amen. It's a good life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in control and we're not. We thank you that you're in control of this world. Even though it seems like the mystery of lawlessness comes into our focus more than it should be, more than it should. Lord, we thank you that the truth is that you're in control. And Lord, I do pray, and I acknowledge that it's hard to settle our hearts there sometimes, but I pray that you'd help us to do that. Help our hearts to settle. And Lord, help us just to know your goodness and to experience it and to live accordingly. So please have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.